From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, UC Irvine political science professor Sean Rosenberg joins me to talk about the end of democracy. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. September 17th is Constitution Day, paradoxically one of America's lesser-known commemorations. How is it America's governing document that provides the how to the Declaration of Independence's why is largely an afterthought? My guest, Professor Sean Rosenberg, believes America has a much deeper problem, the erosion of its democracy. According to Rosenberg, the human brain is not designed for self-rule. The political science professor at UC Irvine, Rosenberg's expertise includes political socialization, public choice, and deliberative democracy. We welcome him to the public morality. Professor Sean Rosenberg, welcome to the public morality. Thank you, Byron. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, Let's begin with... uh, uh, the reasons that uh, under, underline why you argue that um, democracy is devouring itself in Western culture? Well, it's kind of a, a somewhat complicated storyline. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, that question is, is answered primarily, we begin with the notion that we live in a liberal democratic environment. And in fact... Democracy is very demanding on its citizens. It's hard. Um, People tend to think in simple categories of us and them and right and wrong. Um, And um, often in terms of simple hierarchies of power, the easiest way to understand how an organization works is military style, where there's a leader who leads. And democracy is asking us to consider that politics is actually complex. There's all kinds of flows of power. And it's not just a leader deciding. There's disagreement. It requires collaboration. It's governed by principles and rules of law. um, And all of this is complicated. In addition, we're asked to live in a social world that we have to recognize is diverse that people look different than we are, have different beliefs than we do, and yet we're all supposed to be deserving of equal respect. And in the midst of all this complexity, we as individual, we as citizens are told that we have to be individuals. It's important that we self-direct, that we figure out w- what is going on, and when dealing with people quite different from ourselves, that we engage them and, you know, try to take their perspective and understand what's going on. And I think all of this in the end is very hard for people. And when they actually have to confront it, it often leads to a sense of confusion about what's really going on. And given that you don't understand, you start to feel a little anxious. 
Um, you feel isolated because you're supposed to self-direct. And, um, and, and sometimes you feel resentful that you've been put in this uncomfortable place. So I think that in that sense, liberal democracy is always vulnerable to an alternative message, which is framed in terms that the people can readily understand and embrace. Which um, comes to my mind, the reflexive binary choice becomes more appealing in, in that scenario. Sorry about the dog in the background. That's right. I'm a dog lover, so we're fine. Now, I, said the, I said the reflexive binary choice then becomes appealing in the backdrop of this complexity that, you, that you've described. That's absolutely correct. Um, that, you know, what right-wing populism sort of emerges as an alternative because it says, you know what? Politics is not so complicated. We just need a leader who can get things done. And yeah, there are things like multiple institutions and the law and rights, but these, if they get in the way of the popular will, they have to be set aside. And as for society, you know what? We are all the same, basically. And, you know, anyone who is different, that's where the binary comes in also. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, us who are the same and them that are different and we are the, who are good and they who are bad. And that's a, a message that's kind of very simple to understand and therefore appealing and persuasive. Now, 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 by democracy, I'm assuming we're talking about the larger umbrella and you're including republics, federalism. And I guess my, and my question to you, and, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but my question to you, sir, are, are you saying that the human brain is more inclined to embrace authoritarian rule? Well, there's a, there's a yes and a no to that. Well, that that's what this show's about. Just, there's no okay. complex. Yeah, the, yeah. Let's go with the yes and the no. <laughs> okay, so essentially, one direction that some people have gone is to say this is all a matter of evolution, and you know the neuroscience of the brain and our capacities, therefore. To the degree to which they're limited, they're intrinsically limited, and maybe we are not hardwired for democracy. Um, I don't think that's the case. I come out of a developmental psychological tradition mm -hmm. where it allows that as a function of the kinds of environments we're exposed to and the kinds of opportunities that are made available to us, some people develop ways of thinking that are more complex, more abstract, and can more readily um, address some of the issues and narratives of liberal democracy. But most of us have not, for a variety of reasons, the vast majority of citizens in the Western democracies have not developed that capacity. So when I'm talking about this tendency to th think, as you put it, in binary simplistic terms or in terms of simple hierarchies of power and kind of the need to just have clear direction as to what is true and right and what we're supposed to do, and that needs to be provided to people, all of that tends to be um, 
reflect the kinds of capacities that are characteristic probably of 85% of the population of most of the Western democracies. And so then, that's the, the yes and the no. Mm-hmm. As, you, as you were giving your answer, I, I was thinking, um, and we won't do the whole trajectory of America, but I was thinking um, post-1945, this thing called democracy and what sort of galvanized the people, albeit imperfect in its application, even in post-1945, there was sort of, we were galvanized around certain things, the movement, that we, that we, that we sort of moves away with Watergate, Vietnam, um, and now we're in this place now, and, and so are, are we just trying to tread water? Where, where are we on this continuum as you do, do your research there? Well, you know, in some sense, if I can reframe your question slightly, um, given that I believe that liberal democracy is so hard for its citizens and right-wing populism is so appealing, um, it's often been there as an alternative. And the question is, in some sense, why has democracy succeeded for so long? Why have we had it for so long? And I think there are two parts to that answer. One is there's a whole lot going on in society in general that is reinforcing a lot of the understandings and values of a democratic society. So, you know, I'm thinking of things like, you know, capitalist markets, science and technology, um, globalization and democracy itself. All of those forces of essentially the 20th century have been working their way at breaking down traditions and with it traditional authorities and emphasis on groups. And it's been prioritizing change, the possibility of improvement and innovation, and a kind of freeing up of individuals to sort of carve their own path in a somewhat competitive and collaborative world. And so all of that is pushing to support democracy. But I still believe that that's all difficult for people. And so a second element, which is critical, is the fact that the democracies of the post-World War II era have really not been democratic. They've been run by an oligarchic elite. Um, This elite is, you know, political elites and politicians and government. It's uh, economic elites, Wall Street and more broadly. And it's cultural elites that are there in the mass media and universities and educational systems. And although there's some internal disagreement, like between Republicans and Democrats, uh, they all generally buy in to the liberal democratic ethos. And I think they do so partly because they have been advantaged. They've been given all kinds of opportunities. And in that way, that's helped them, many of them, certainly not all, um, develop the kind of cognitive apparatus that they can understand the system better. Also, they're, of course, key beneficiaries. They're on top of the pyramid, so they want to support it as well. And so they have they've always had the authority. They are the experts. They are the people who know. They are the people in power. 
And they've also had raw control. They've been able to really determine who gets access to the levers of power um, before primary systems became so wildly open, they were able to effectively exclude people. Um, good example of that was Henry Ford back in the late 20s, early 30s. Ford wanted to run for president. He was probably far and away the most popular man in America, but he was a neo-fascist, uh, very sympathetic to Hitler, and Republican and Democratic elites, each in their own way, said, no, we're not even going to allow you into the nomination process. And he had to withdraw. And they've also been able to control the message, you know, through mass centralized mass media when there were only broadcast stations, um, uh, et cetera. They were also able to exclude messages that were seen as one way or another extreme. So democracy succeeded for a long time, largely due to its kind of somewhat undemocratic character and the power of this oligarchy. Mm -hmm. you, you know, again, um, I'm listening to your response, and, and I was sort of I was thinking about um, the people running for president, especially in this case on the Democratic side, and there's very little discussion. Uh, one, in my view, about the type of country we want to be going forward, not not just policy issues, but, but what do we want to be, which is sort of um, in, in one way I, what I hear you saying. But one tangible that I'd like to have you comment on is that we know we know that artificial intelligence is going to cause uh, change in the culture, good and bad. And there's not. So if there's if no one is discussing it, um, are we just going to repeat this cyclical thing where uh, artificial intelligence, you know, becomes this dominant uh, part of American life? Jobs are lost, people are angry, and we just repeat this um, sort of uh, what you say this right wing sort of ethos uh, that simplifies everything until democracy just runs out. Is that is that the path we're on? Well. Okay, there, that's an interesting question. And as I'm hearing it, I think there's two aspects. And one is the kinds of things that we're confronting in the longer term, like artificial intelligence, even climate change for that matter, um, is is a kind of problem that is so complicated and somehow seems to only going to unravel itself 10, 20 years from now. And so politicians, for the most part, there's some notable exceptions like Andrew Yang, yes. et cetera. Yes. Um, politicians, for the most part, are just postponing dealing with it. Um, the worry, of course, is they postpone too late. Um, if I, but but if, I, if I may, sir, that postponement, doesn't that bring to fruition your concerns? Yes, I think my, my concerns, in some sense, are emerging already there. It will be heightened by things that may go dramatically wrong because of artificial intelligence creating mass unemployment or climate change creating crisis. But I think what's happened is... In a funny sense, 
in the last 20 or 30 years, democracy has been succeeding. It's been deepening and widening uh, a sense of freedom, equality, uh, respect for diversity, all the rest has penetrated more and more deeply into society. Um, and it extends into the workplace, it extends into family, it extends into lifestyle. And one of the consequences of this is that oligarchic elite is losing power. We saw that quite dramatically with the Republican elite in 2016. None of them wanted Donald Trump. He upended the entire apple cart. And it's because the elite had lost respect. They were part, became almost a traditional elite. They lost control of access to the message and to the levers of power. And in a funny sense, as a result, we as citizens were more fully emancipated and empowered to engage in the process. And the danger is there that most citizens find the right-wing populist message attractive. They are freely and equally choosing against liberal democracy in the favor of right-wing populism, which is why I worry about democracy devouring itself. Because in a sense, as we become more democratic and citizens are emancipated and empowered, they are choosing against democracy. They're doing it here, they're doing it in Germany, they're doing it in Italy, they're doing it in Britain. Um, this seems to be a relatively widespread phenomenon. And then the things that you're, and of course, all of this is accentuated if there's crisis. Populism thrives on crisis. So if, you know, the uh, now our crises are, you know, often invented ones like Iran and immigration. Um, it's astonishing that these two considerations in the broader spectrum of American politics are really small sideshows. And yet they've been elevated to center stage to create this sense of crisis. Um, and it thrives on it because then people get scared and they do want what's comfortable and clear. Um, and so AI and the rest and what it brings with it can cause really serious problems. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Sean Rosenberg, political science professor at uh, UC Irvine, home of the Anteaters. Is that Anteaters? Yeah, Anteaters? It yeah. Is. yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Uh, Professor Rosenberg, from a cognitive standpoint, um, is it based on what we've already discussed? Is it understandable to you? We're going to go back to uh, 1933. You, neither you and I were, 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 were covering those episodes in 1933 Germany, but we're going to go back to 33. Is it understandable that the German people would relinquish you know, their civil liberties um, for the perception of safety and security now that we can look back on it? I'm not taking a position or defending it one way or the other. I'm just saying from a cognitive standpoint, is it understandable to you? Yes, uh, completely. I mean, um, one thing which is a whole other topic of discussion is the relationship between these right-wing populist movements and fascism. But yes, I mean, they were getting a similar message. They were saying, look, there are all these problems out there. You know what? They're not so complicated. 
Um, what you need is somebody who reflects the will of the people. And somehow we all know that. And the leader knows that. And you give me the power and I'm going to take care of business, in a, which is the only way business can be taken care of. You know, you can't run a company or a country by committee is kind of the argument. And, and you don't have to worry. You're not really giving up anything because we, the people, all share the same beliefs and values. So we're only going to do what you want to do anyway. Is um, And so that you're not losing much. And what you're gaining is a lot of certainty, a sense of identity and belonging, um, and a clear understanding of what the problem is. So it's very, very attractive in general. There's one uh, political scientist, uh, Jan Werner Mueller, a German who now teaches at Princeton. And, and he said that populism is always a shadow for democracy, that it's always there. He doesn't explain why. I try to. I think it's always there because in terms of the kind of social psychology of who people are, it's something that will always attract them. It's a vision of the world that is readily understandable and comfortable. So in a funny way, the Germans in 1933 weren't giving up anything. They were really just getting stuff. They were getting directions, security, and clear action. Often fascism in particular, but right-wing populism also is, we don't want all this talk, talk, talk. Talk is meaningless. What we just need is action. And the reason we don't need talk is because they operate with this fiction that we, the people, are all the same. And the concern, of course, is that's a very dangerous fiction. You were talking about populism as a shadow. I'm thinking of Huey Long in the 30s. You had George Wallace in the 60s, Ross Perot in the 90s. So you've, you've always had this shadow with this with this popular message that does to, to some degree get some traction. You know? Right. And I think the only reason it was limited is because these people could be marginalized. They had limited access to power and media message, um, schooling and all the rest. And all of that, that part is changing. Part of the new technological environment with the Internet and social media and all the rest is not only can you listen to people just like you and avoid everything else, but you can also, um, you know, you have a voice. You potentially can have 10,000, 100,000 followers. Um, and so whether... And that, in some sense, is very democratic because it means everybody gets a voice. Uh, but the problem, of course, is that a lot of those voices have relatively simplistic um, and, to my way of thinking, ultimately inadequate understanding of what society is, what its problems are, and how to deal with them. Now, now that you're, the last part, and I certainly understand what you're saying, but the last part of your answer sounds very Madisonian. Uh, and I'm thinking, what, what, Federalist 10? I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, we've got to put some controls on the majority, which then becomes is democratic, but then in one sense it's kind of authoritarian in a way, is it not? 
Yes, it is. And, you know, it's interesting because I just went back and read the Federalist Papers again for the first time in about 25 years. <laughs> and you're probably a lot smarter be, now after 25 years when you read them, right? Right. I said you're probably a lot smarter 25 years reading them now than you were 25 years ago. Yes, and certainly more. <laughs> yeah, definitely older and more experienced. Um, and in some sense, I appreciate them more as you know, as an extraordinary attempt for some people to create something out of nothing and try to think it through, even if in, you know, ultimately in many flawed ways, but uh, but still for its time, extraordinary. Um, but yes, I mean, the Madisonian solution was was essentially to try to ensure that an oligarchy would rule. Whatever you could, you had to curb popular power. Um, my sense is, you know, the cat is partly out of the bag on this one. Um, we now have a more empowered, uh, population that is, you know, is thoroughly capitalist, thoroughly technology oriented, um, confronting some of the realities of globalization and, um, they are feeling that, you know what, traditional authority isn't often working um, and they are feeling emancipated and they are feeling confused. And it, it does, it begs the question of where we can go now, what we can look forward to. And um, as I've thought it through, for me, it seems like there are two possibilities. Um, one, the kind of thing you're suggesting, a more authoritarian one. And what you do is you say, look, given the limitations of who the people are, necessarily what is going to happen is government is going to evolve in a direction that meets their capacities and limitations. So it's going to become more author authoritarian. The world is going to look a lot more like Singapore, for example, um, where yeah, you have elections and there is the possibility for free speech, but the elections are there just to uh, as a statement of support for the leadership. They're kind of symbolic. Uh, they're cheerleading activities rather than elections as we might normally want to think about them as competitive. And we move in that direction. The other direction is, you know, one which I both prefer and frankly think is far less likely. And the other direction is to say, well, you know what we have to do is we have to develop our citizenry so that it can meet the needs of a liberal democracy. And that, you know, all of a sudden you try to, you know, and some people have called for this. They've called, well, we need civics education to incult inculcate liberal values. Um, I agree with that, but if they, there's no appreciation of the complexity of that. The, the first step in some sense is to recognize that basically all living adults in Western democratic societies, when they were in school, were exposed to hundreds of hours of civics education, and that didn't seem to pr produce anything. So, yes, we need to educate young people, 
but partly we have to begin with the understanding that basically we how we've done it thus far is pretty much a total failure and to tinker with the system will accomplish nothing and you know and then there's adults because you know you just don't stop learning when you're 18 or if you happen to go to college 22 um you know in some sense the kinds of political practices we engage in are educating also. And right now, what do most of us do? We go vote in an election and that's it. And maybe talk about things a little bit with our friends. And, you know, those things aren't very cognitively demanding. Um, we generally talk to people with a, who, who agree with each other, who agree with us. So, you know, if if I love Trump, I talk to Trump supporters and we pat ourselves on the back on how good he is or the alternative, how bad he is. Um, and voting, I mean, my children were voting when they were eight years old in school for president. Anybody can vote. Um, and so we need a different kind. We need to involve people in adult political activities that engage, force them to engage directly with the problems that we are confronting and to do so in a way that they have to collaborate, that they have to engage with one another. The problem is that alternative, uh, both the educational alternative and, and changing adult political practices would require a sea change in American politics. And frankly, I don't know if we're capable of it. Some worry that uh, President Trump, like Adolf Hitler in 1933, will manage to consolidate power, permanently alter our democratic conditions. And I was wondering, how do you see that that phenomenon? Because as I recall, I don't, you do not what you're talking the, the genesis of what you're talking about did not begin with Donald Trump. So I was wondering how you saw that that whole phenomenon. The Trump phenomenon. Well, the Trump phenomenon, first of all, do you worry that, like Hitler, he's going to consolidate power to himself? Two, you, the, 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 the overarching message that you, that you are conveying, you do, that did not begin with the emergence of Donald Trump is what I'm thinking. Right. So uh, on the one hand, yes, I think Donald Trump is a symptom, not a cause. Um, you know, he before he could begin to push the levers of governance, he had to be elected and he was. Um, and this phenomenon of a successful right wing populism has also emerged in other countries, um, you know, where you know, people like Marie Le Pen are similarly strong in France, uh, in Hungary, in Poland. They actually have control of government. You haven't, even mentioned, you haven't even mentioned Brazil yet. <laughs> well, Brazil is, you know, I'm trying to look at places with that have more established democracies. But yeah, places like Brazil, Turkey, the Philippines are yeah. out of control in that regard. But I think even if Trump is only a system, uh, a symptom, he is also a facilitator. And, you know, the, the word populist gets thrown around a lot 
And it bothers me a little that people like Warren and Sanders are called populists because for, you know, to say they're populist because they appeal to the people and what they want <laughs> or might want, well, that's what every politician does. Um, but what is distinctive about particularly right-wing populism is that it buys into a view of the world where a lot of these liberal democratic values of individual and minority rights, the rule of law, an independent judiciary, these are seen as obstructions to getting things done. And so, and Trump falls quite squarely into that category. And so I think he has already done considerable damage in terms of weakening American institutions in the eyes of its public. And if reelected, um, which is a distinct possibility, um, he will consolidate a lot of that. And will America enter the world of, you know, the man of High Castle or, uh, <laughs> you know, the, you know, authoritarian politics in five years? No, I don't think so. But not much long thereafter. It's a big step in um, that direction. And also part of that authoritarian playbook isn't, uh, you sort of touched on it, I'd like to hear you expand on it, is that isn't a prerequisite is that you have to other someone, you have to have an enemy, uh, whether it's Hispanics, whether it's blacks, whether it's Jews, you have to have someone that you can other that's less than whatever my nationality is. Is that, isn't that part of the playbook? It's, yes, and it's part, it's part of the playbook um, because it partly legitimates the need to use power because there's an enemy to be dealt with. It also is a way of unifying your followership because we all share a common enemy, as well as being in general the same. Um, and what is so deeply problematic about it is it so nicely fits with how people think. People think often in terms of categories. So they very readily follow, fall into the categories of white, black, uh, Christian, not Christian, religious, atheist, and American, un-American. And so, and we're taught that we're not supposed to do that. But for most people, it's kind of hard. They're always fighting against this natural inclination to stereotype. And, um, and then along comes somebody like Trump who says, you know what, it's okay to do that. And that has a very powerful effect because we've been living in an environment for most of the late 20th century where all of our culture and our leadership were telling us, no, you should not do that. And so even if we tended in that direction, more or less successfully, we tried to put a break on it. But now all of a sudden, leadership is telling us it's perfectly okay. And I think that's extremely dangerous. All right. This is um, 
This is the bonus question for you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy for the bonus. Here's the bonus question, Um, and I'm going to quote Winston Churchill. You know, Churchill says it's not the end, it's not the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Where are where are we as say America, if you want to take America specifically or Western culture in general, where are we on this continuum in terms of uh, the the peril of democracy? I must admit, although I hope to the contrary, I'm going to have to go with Winston Churchill's first phrase and and go with the beginning of the end. Okay. Um, it, because what we are seeing is not just an American phenomenon, it's spreading, it's, you know, spreading across the Western democracies. And, um, and I think it's doing so for reasons. And I think, you know, a number of commentators have said that this is all just a bump on the road. You know, these populists, are reminding us that there are people who are excluded and um, and ways in which a governing elite is being unresponsive. And I think that's to misunderstand why they're popular and uh, the kinds of underlying forces that are both political and psychological that are operating here. Professor Sean Rosenberg, a UC Irvine political science professor, uh, Sir, I want to thank you for joining me today on on The Public Morality. That was Professor Sean Rosenberg. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Welcome back. This week commemorates the 94th birthday of Riley Blues Boy King, also known as Blues Great B.B. King. The blues impresario has such an impact on modern music, influencing such greats as Eric Clapton, Buddy Guy, and Jimi Hendrix. B.B. could play a thousand notes and never say what you said in one, tweeted Lenny Kravitz. He ranked number six, on Rolling Stone Magazine's 2011 list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Known for his sophisticated soloing, subtle vibratos, and bend notes, playing on the Gibson guitar he called Lucille. Here's B.B. King on what would have been his 94th birthday singing his classic, The Thrill is Gone.
The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.